for this uh, next session. This will be the last session before our supper break, or dinner break, depending on where you're from. I'm going to say supper break. <laughs> it's always interesting through the years when we've occasionally had presenters. Uh, obviously, we have people from lots of different backgrounds, uh, educationally and in terms of where they grew up in the country, even at this symposium. Symposium, we have uh, several different states represented here, and we're so gratified by that. And we've also, through the years, had folks who have come into the Free Will Baptist movement um, through uh, not by having grown up in a family that were members of a Free Will Baptist church, but a person who they or their and or their parents uh, came our way by just study and reading and reflection and over time, and that's kind of the case of our ne case with our next presenter, as I understand it. That's Joshua A. Hunter. Um, he and his family have joined the denomination about nine years ago, and he has since great, gained a great love for the denomination's history and faith tradition. He is a two-time graduate of this institution, uh, the bachelor's level and master's level, and is continuing on with his studies in the Master of Divinity program here at Welch Divinity School. He's also got a unique background vocationally, serving as an instructional designer for a Christian curriculum publisher and an associate copy editor for a collegiate press. He's uh, involved with other academic pursuits with the Near East Archaeological Society and also as a student member of the Evangelical Theological Society. And while we don't get any kind of kickback from ETS, I will say ETS is a great organization we'd encourage you to get more familiar with, especially on the regional level and then maybe at the national level. Um, again, that's, uh, you can find their website, etsjets.org, and uh, I think that would be of interest to you. At this time, we're going to invite Mr. Hunter to come and present on a very interesting topic, Ecclesial Individuality and the History of the Free Will Baptist Church Covenant. Josh, we're glad to have you come present at this time. Good afternoon, everyone. I would like to thank the commission for the honor of coming here to share with you a little bit on this topic. I know I'm kind of young and a novice in the room of many masters, but thank you for the honor of being able to come and to present this to you. My paper topic is Ecclesial Individuality and the History of the Free Will Baptist Church Covenant. The church today has adopted a mentality of individualization. While individuality is certainly an aspect of the faith, as one is justified and sanctified as an individual, God designed the ecclesial body to function corporately. This is now more evident than ever as churches emerge from the COVID-19 shutdown. Many men and women of the faith felt isolated, longing to be back with their church family, while others found the individual online church to be freeing, and some worry that they may never return to the church. However, this ecclesial individuality cannot be blamed solely on the COVID-19 shutdown. In a 2019 survey of 2,500 Protestants conducted by Lifeway, 65% of respondents reported that they could walk with God without fellow Christians. And 36% of those say that they strongly agreed with that statement. Only one out of every five respondents said that they could not walk with God without other believers. This report was only one year prior to the epidemic. 
The shutdown merely provided the impetus, and in some cases the apologetic, for many to embrace the already present and growing belief that the Christian life can be conducted individually and on one's own. Yet this mentality stands against how the church has historically perceived itself. The church has perceived itself to be united as one bride in one covenant union with the triune God. While comprised of individual persons, the persons are united in a covenant union with God and with each other based on Christ's sacrificial work. This unity has traditionally been expressed through a church covenant, an oath, formal or informal, taken by the local church to be faithful to orthodoxy and orthopraxy. With ecclesial individualism growing in today's culture, churches should return to this covenantal unity. They should renew their unity in light of COVID-19 by retrieving the examples of their past. The Freewill Baptist denomination in particular has an efficacious example of covenant unity that may be retrieved. The Freewill Baptist Church covenant developed from General Baptist roots and was maintained in America by founders in both the Palmer and Randall movements. Throughout their history, the Free Will Baptist forefathers covenanted together as a display of their unity in orthodoxy and orthopraxy, and it is that unity the denominations should strive for today. So what is a church covenant? Charles DeWeese defines a church covenant as a series of promises which church members voluntarily make to God and to one another concerning biblically-based guidelines by which they intend to conduct themselves or practice their faith as Christians. This definition elucidates two primary aspects of a church covenant. First, the church covenant is a series of promises or oaths that the church makes voluntarily to God and one another. This promissory aspect is what intrinsically connects the church covenant to the covenant the church has with God. There is no direct biblical mandate in scripture for the adoption of a church covenant. However, the concept of covenanting with God and each other finds its basis in God's covenant with humanity. Christ, through his sacrificial work on the cross, established the new covenant, forever uniting all who would believe in him together as the communio sanctorum. The church covenant reflects this greater covenant. The church covenants itself together as local assemblies of the bride and body of Christ. The foundation of its promises is the kept promises of God to Israel and his church. Second, <clears throat> excuse me, the church covenant is not only founded upon scripture, but emphasizes scriptural orthodoxy and orthopraxy. Orthodoxy is the right faith of the church as revealed in God's word. A proper church covenant should hold those who adhere to it to a standard of faith. It defends the church from heretical beliefs as well as individualistic beliefs. Scripture is not open to private interpretation, 2 Peter 1, 20-21. In today's modern culture, where truth has become subjective to the individual, the church covenant offers a shield against unorthodox beliefs. Likewise, the church covenant emphasizes orthopraxy, proper Christian living. Just as scripture cannot be interpreted in any way an individual pleases, a believer cannot live any way they wish either. While scripture does emphasize Christian liberty, it also emphasizes that one's life reflects their faith. Matthew 7:16, James 2:14 through 26. The church covenant, therefore, is a means of defending both right belief and right living, orthodoxy and orthopraxy. 
It is the proclamation of the church that they believe the scriptures are sufficient for theology and life. It is a promise made to God and others that the local gathering of believers will follow what the scriptures state as the sole rule of faith and practice. Historical background of the Free Will Baptist Church Covenant. The emphasis upon orthodoxy and orthopraxy has a foundation as early as the second century. One of the earliest references to a church covenant was made by Pliny the Younger. He reports that Christians were making oaths regarding orthopraxy as early as 112 AD. These oaths, combined with the early creeds, may be viewed as the informal foundations of a church covenant. While there were no formally worded statements local assemblies signed, there was an expectation for orthodoxy evident in the creeds and orthopraxy evident in the oaths. The creeds and oaths were founded upon scripture and the church utilized them for accountability. The rise of the various heresies and their formal condemnation by the ecumenical councils further supports this concept. The church believed there was a standard of faith and practice as revealed in scripture that believers should follow. Therefore, while the modern form of the church covenant was not practiced by the early church, the creeds and oaths reveal a similar emphasis on unity in their adherence to orthodoxy and orthopraxy. This emphasis was then renewed by the General Baptist and served as the foundation for later Free Will Baptists. The General Baptists were founded by English separatists who fled from persecution in England. However, it does appear they were familiar with the concept of the church covenant even before leaving England. While it is unclear how the concept of a church covenant arrived in England, one theory proposed by Champlain Burridge is that it was a result of Anabaptist influence within the country. As early as 1527, the Anabaptists were informally agreeing between themselves and God that they would stand united and uphold seven articles encompassing matters of faith in the life of the church and its members, many of which began with the words, we have agreed or we have become united. As the years continued, numerous references to the concept of a church covenant within the Anabaptists, particularly regarding baptism as one's covenant with God and the church, are mentioned along with adherence to articles of faith. However, due to heavy persecution, the Anabaptist movement became sparse. One of the last references to a form of church covenant dates to 1566, only 40 years after the initial mention, but still 50 years before the founding of the General Baptists. However, churches in England were familiar with the concept of a church covenant by the mid to late 16th century, thereby lining up with the Anabaptists. Anabaptist influence, therefore, is a possibility, especially given the influence they later had on the General Baptist forefathers. However, it is only one theory and an area that may be in need of further researching. One of the earlier references to an English church covenant is the Gainsborough Scrooby Covenant. William Bradford discusses how the churches join themselves together by a covenant of the Lord into a church estate in the fellowship of the gospel to walk in all his ways made known or to be made known unto them according to their best endeavors whatsoever it should cost them the Lord assisting them. This was the church John Smith and Thomas Helwes began in Gainsborough that eventually split around 1605-1606 when part of the church began to meet at Scrooby under the pastorate of John Robinson. 
Both the Gainsborough and the Scrooby branches of the church fled to Amsterdam a few years later, with the church at Scrooby then moving to Leyden around 1609. Members of the Scrooby Church later crossed the Atlantic on the Mayflower and settled in America. Bradford records that before setting out, they made a covenant together that those leaving first and those remaining behind would each remain a united church regardless if they would ever see each other again. They also, upon arriving in America, seem to have maintained the original Gainsborough Scrooby covenant and made another covenant with God and each other to be a united colony, demonstrating their emphasis on covenant making. As for Smith and Helwes, they too maintained a strong emphasis on having a church covenant. Smith set forth what he believed to be the ideal constitution and worship practice of the church in his work, Principles and Inferences Regarding the Visible Church, written in 1607. In this work, he states that the scriptural precedent to which all churches must abide was that the church be comprised of saints joined to one another by God and covenant. He posits that a visible communion of saints is of two, three, or more saints joined together by covenant with God and themselves, freely to use all the holy things of God according to the word for their mutual edification and God's glory. The outward part of the true form of the true visible church is a vow, promise, oath, or covenant betwixt God and the saints. He then offers a description of how a covenant should be laid out as well as what it should contain. Smith also states in his 1608 work, The Differences of the Churches of the Separation, that it is our covenant made with our God to forsake every evil way, whether in opinion or practice, that shall be manifested unto us at any time. As this work offers an apologetic for the bifurcation of the Gainsborough and Scrooby Church, it elucidates that their covenantal beliefs were not dependent upon the Scrooby Church. Smith maintained a covenantal emphasis even after separating from the Scrooby Church. Helwes, who then eventually broke away from Smith to establish the General Baptists, appears to have also maintained the inclusion of a church covenant as well. Our own Dr. Matthew Pinson states that the General Baptists who followed Helwes did not see themselves as individual priests of Christ. Rather, they were priests to each other, serving each other, and serving alongside each other in covenant unity. They believed that they answered both to God and each other, and thereby emphasized a covenant to hold themselves accountable. Adam Taylor also mentions that in the early to mid-1690s, the members of the General Baptist Church at Canterbury availed themselves of the quiet and toleration which the Revolution introduced to renew their covenant with God and with each other and to revive the vigor of discipline which the recent troubles had caused, in some degree, to relax. The founders of the General Baptist Movement, as well as those who associated with them in the Scrooby Church, practiced covenantal unity. While specific references to local church covenants within the General Baptist are difficult to locate, the references that are available reveal a favorable disposition towards the practice, laying the foundation for later free will Baptists. One of the earliest General Baptists in the New World is Benjamin Laker, a prominent English General Baptist who traveled to North Carolina. However, it is his son-in-law, Paul Palmer, who offers the greatest insight into early American General Baptist covenants. While it is not known whether Palmer was a General Baptist before his relationship with Benjamin Laker, he eventually became one of the greatest founders of the General Free Will Baptist movement in the South. 
Little is known about Palmer's early life prior to his work in North Carolina. It is believed that he was a native of Maryland, but it is possible he only resided there for a brief time. He was baptized by Elder Owen Thomas in Welsh Tract, Delaware, before traveling to New Jersey and then to North Carolina, where he met Laker and founded the first Baptist church in the state. However, before this, Palmer was involved with the Chestnut Ridge Church in Maryland. This church was founded by Henry Sater, an English General Baptist who moved to Maryland in 1709. Sater invited various ministers to come and preach to the church, including Palmer, who was noted for baptizing nine people during his time there. Well, it was not until after Palmer left, the Chestnut Ridge Church later adopted a church covenant in 1742 under the ministry of Henry Lovell. The covenant is as follows. We, the humble professors of the gospel of Christ, baptized upon a declaration of faith and repentance, believing the doctrine of general redemption or the free grace of God extended to all mankind, do hereby seriously, heartily, and solemnly, in the presence of the searcher of all hearts, and before the world, covenant, agree, bind, and settle ourselves into a church to hold, abide by, and contend for the faith once delivered to the saints, especially as maintained in the forms and confessions of the Baptists in England. And further, we do bind ourselves to follow the pattern of our brethren in England to maintain order, government, and discipline in our church, especially that excellent directory of Reverend Francis Stanley entitled The Gospel Honor and Church, church Ornament, dedicated to the churches in the counties of Lincoln, Nottingham, and Cambridge. We also engage that all persons upon joining our society shall yield consent to and subscribe this our solemn league and covenant, subscribed by us whose names are underwritten this tenth day, this tenth day of July, 1742. This covenant elucidates not only that a General Baptist Church in America maintained the practice of adopting church covenants, but it connects this practice to the churches in England. While it is unclear why Palmer did not establish a church covenant during his time there, or I may add that he might have and it had just been lost, the inclusion of a church covenant only a few decades later implies that the congregation was not against the practice. Unfortunately, it is difficult to locate specific records and references to church covenants within the Palmer movement. The heavy persecution the General Baptist experienced while in England from the particular Baptists and the National Church did not cease in America. While no longer under heavy persecution from the English Church, the Palmer movement lost many churches to the missionary efforts of the particular Baptists. This may explain why church covenants are difficult to locate among early Southern Friel Baptists as they likely adopted new covenants. Lemuel Burkett and Jesse Reed allude to this, stating that it was customary for the reorganized churches to adopt church covenants, and so in a sense to replace the ones once they had changed to particular Baptists. However, T.F. Harrison and J.M. Barfield, in their history of North Carolina Free Will Baptists, do record a short liberal Baptist or Free Will Baptist catechism that, in response to the question, what is a Christian church, answers a body of true believers visibly committed to Christ by baptism and united together in covenant for such larger usefulness as such union is calculated to promote. 
Later Southern Church covenants also reveal that the practice was maintained. For example, the Minutes of the Liberty Association No. 2 in Alabama from 1927 record the following church covenant. In order to have more perfect and free Christian love and fellowship for each other, and to advance the cause of our Lord and Master, we do hereby agree and covenant, by the help of God our Father and aided by the Holy Spirit, to keep the ordinances, precepts, and examples as laid down in the New Testament for our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. This rendition of the covenant was also included in the 1925 minutes and in the 1916 and 1920 minutes of the Liberty No. 1 Association. And I mentioned in the footnotes, but it is interesting to note here that they maintained a covenant in their minutes almost constantly up until the formation of the National Association when they adopted the National Church Covenant. And the most recent minutes we have in the historical archive is 2018, and every single year they have put that covenant in there. So they've been doing it for a long time. Uh, Pinson also records that this covenant was used in Georgia, Alabama, Florida, Mississippi, and Texas. While records may be difficult to locate, especially regarding local church covenants, the fervency and consistency of this tradition over the decades elucidates a strong emphasis among Southern churches on keeping a church covenant. Shortly after Palmer's work in the South, Benjamin Randall began founding Free Will Baptist churches in the North. Unlike the Palmer movement, references to church covenants within the Randall movement are more readily available due to the number of documents the movement published. The references reveal that, like the Palmer movement and the English General Baptist, the Randall movement also maintained an emphasis on covenantal unity. Benjamin Randall wrote the first known Northern Freel Baptist Church covenant in 1780 for the new Durham Freel Baptist Church in New Hampshire. And his covenant stated, Therefore, we do now declare that we have given ourselves to God, and do now give ourselves to one another in love and fellowship, and agree to take the scriptures of truth for the rule of our faith and practice, respecting our duty toward God, our neighbors, and ourselves. We promise to practice all the commands and ordinances of the New Testament of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, so far as they are or shall be made known to us by the light of the Holy Spirit, without which we cannot attain to the true knowledge thereof. We promise to bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of love, which is the law of Christ. We do agree to give liberty for the improvement of the gifts of the brethren, to keep up the public worship of God among ourselves, and not to forsake the assembling of ourselves together, as the manner of some is. And we also agree not to receive any person into fellowship, except he give a satisfactory account of a change in life and heart, and shall also promise to submit to the order and discipline as above. May God enable us to keep covenant. Amen. Randall's covenant meets the definition aforementioned, as well as the historic emphasis on orthodoxy and orthopraxy. It is a promise made to God and to one another that, with Scripture as their rule of faith and practice, they will believe and act in a faithful manner. Randall was then later called to a church in Stratford to offer his assistance, and on March 26, 1788, the church of 13 members covenanted together, stating, We, whose names are here underwritten, do covenant and promise to walk together in love and fellowship. We agree to take the scriptures of truth as the rule of our practice, respecting our duty to God, our neighbors, and ourselves. 
While a much shorter version, this reflects the core aspects of Randall's previous covenant. Randall's covenant also influenced other Baptist movements as well. Asa McGray, one of the founders of the Free Baptist Movement in Nova Scotia, was ordained by New England Free Will Baptists in 1814 before moving to Nova Scotia in 1816. Charles Dewey states that the concept of covenant union was potentially brought to Nova Scotia from the New England Free Will Baptists by McGray. The Free Baptists of New Brunswick, whom Dewey states also held Arminian beliefs, emphasized the adoption and public reading of a church covenant while the Free Baptists of Nova Scotia advised a public reading of the covenant at least four times a year, specifically once every three months. As Free Will Baptists in the North declined over the next decade, Randall eventually reorganized the new Durham Church in 1791. During this reorganization, he composed an even stricter church covenant that was signed by all the members. There are several other mentions of churches adopting covenants towards the end of the century as well, such as in Vermont, three churches in New Hampshire, and several in Maine, with nearly all of the covenants being written down. While there are more examples within the Randall movement than the general Baptist and Palmer movements, many records have still been lost. However, I.D. Stewart posits that what information remains seems to all be in favor of having a church covenant. Most references to a church covenant within the 19th century occur in relation to the Free Will Baptist General Conference rather than within the local church. As aforementioned, this is primarily due to the lack of information within the local church, not that the local church disfavored the practice as the minutes will reveal. Stewart records that in a covenant meeting in 1825, all who wished to join the denomination came forward, knelt in prayer, and, quote, solemnly gave themselves over to God and each other in covenant obligations, end quote. Approximately a decade later, the 1834 edition of the Treatise of the Free Will Baptists was published in New Hampshire. Included within the treatise are statements regarding adherence to a covenant. It states that they are establishing a monthly conference so that members may speak to each other on spiritual things and renew their covenant with God and with one another. This treatise also references Benjamin Randall's original church covenant, thereby showing that the concept of covenantal unity was passed down from one generation of the church to the next. In the middle of the century, the minutes of the 1859 Free Will Baptist General Conference mention that the circular letter sent out that year urged the brethren to remember their covenant vows. They also make mention of the Free Will Baptists in North Carolina, as well as those in Kentucky that Reverend Elias Hutchins contacted, and state that these groups are doing well and seem to be in union with them. It is likewise mentioned later in response to a question regarding whether a church should drop a member from its role without a formal dismissal, that if a church member is absent for two years, it is the opinion of the conference that he be excluded from fellowship as a covenant breaker. This inclusion demonstrates the maintained emphasis on orthodoxy along with orthopra- or orthopraxy along with orthodoxy. Unfortunately, the Northern Free Will Baptist movement merged with the Northern Baptists in 1911. Those that remained eventually merged with other Free Will Baptist churches and created the Cooperative General Association. While only a remnant of the former denomination, the Cooperative Association maintained its former emphasis on covenantal unity. At its first meeting in Oklahoma in 1917, Timothy Murphy, a minister from West Virginia, held a covenant meeting 
in which all participated and the covenant was read before a feast was served. This record takes one close to the founding of the National Association in 1935. While the summary is brief, it elucidates that the denomination, from its inception until its organization as the National Association, has consistently maintained the practice of covenanting themselves together for accountability to orthodoxy and orthopraxy, both in vocal and in written forms. This served as the foundation for the founding of the National Association, as the two halves, the Cooperative General Association and the General Conference, covenanted together as one denomination, the current Free Will Baptist Covenant. Upon meeting in 1935, the Western Cooperative General Association and the Eastern General Conference agreed to merge into a single national denomination and adopt a united treatise. This treatise, published a year later in 1936, required all churches wishing to join the denomination to, a, to adopt a church covenant. The National Association also adopted a covenant and included it within the original treatise. It begins, having given ourselves to God by faith in Christ and adopted the word of God as our rule of faith and practice, we now give ourselves to one another by the will of God in this solemn covenant. As one may note, this covenant maintains the characteristics of the church covenant that were defined previously and that the general free will Baptists have historically maintained. The covenant is a promise made to God and one another and reliant upon scripture as the basis for orthodoxy and orthopraxy. The National Association's church covenant faithfully maintained the same core beliefs emphasized by its founders three centuries prior. When one compares the 1936 edition of the Church Covenant to the present-day covenant, they are identical. Churches today continue to faithfully practice covenantal unity, promising to God and each other to remain faithful to orthodoxy and orthopraxy. While adherence to the covenant is beginning to wane, and many members are no longer even aware of its existence, Nearly every church continues to maintain a covenant and utilize it as the guidelines for membership within the congregation. The purpose of a church covenant. A renewal of covenantal unity is the solution to ecclesial individuality. Believers are not supposed to live in isolation, attending church on their own from afar. Rather, the historic practice of the church has been to covenant together, a practice emphasized within the free will Baptist tradition. Without covenantal unity, there ceases to be unity in orthodoxy and orthopraxy. Believers may define scripture by their own private interpretation with no accountability to the proper exegesis of scripture. David Jocelyn states that the Free Will Baptist Church Covenant was created to encourage responsibility to Christ and his church. It was a, quote, collection of written promises, end quote, that members made to each other regarding various aspects of the Christian life, especially regarding orthodoxy and orthopraxy. Likewise, the Centennial Record mentions that Randall's Covenant was adopted to express their views on Christian obligation. The Church Covenant is a means of educating believers on the teachings of Scripture and the doctrines of the Church and how those apply to life. Requesting that members then adhere to the covenant holds them to the standard of orthodoxy and orthopraxy. The standard is not found in the church covenant itself, but in the scriptures authored by the God of kept covenants. The scriptures are a sufficient guide for orthodoxy and orthopraxy. 
Through covenanting together, the church is promising God and each other that they will establish their lives upon the holy word of God and will let it be the lamp unto their feet and the light unto their path. Psalm 119, 105. This protects the church not only from the, quote, tyranny of mere human opinion, end quote, but from attempts to supplement doctrine and worship with cultural and business practices that were built upon the sand. The church covenant is also one of the greatest means of preserving the Free Old Baptist denomination, particularly our specific faith tradition. The greatest threat to the denomination, as evidenced throughout its history, is for those with a different faith tradition or no faith tradition to become leaders in churches and associations. A church covenant holds the people, from the laity to the leadership, accountable to right beliefs. The church covenant, in essence, maintains the faith tradition of the church and the denomination. The faith tradition is comprised of the church's historical understanding of scripture and its guidelines for faith and practice. The covenant protects the faith tradition by educating members in the tradition, thus promulgating it to the next generation. Covenantal unity maintains the faith tradition because it emphasizes accountability in its orthodoxy and orthopraxy. The covenant does not permit past does not permit passive unity, nor a laissez-faire leadership, nor membership. Covenant obligations exclude any form of ecclesial individuality. The church has never understood itself as isolated individuals. Rather, it requires participatory unity, in which the members of the church strengthen and serve each other with their spiritual gifts. This is why the covenant is made to God and each other. The members are intended to support and serve each other just as Christ served the church. The threat of losing the faith tradition is the true danger following the COVID-19 shutdown. There is a sudden need for churches to hold services online and cease to gather. However, there has been concern that this has altered the way people perceive corporate worship, encouraging the concept of ecclesial individuality that was growing prior to the shutdown. As another shutdown may be approaching, it is still too early to tell what the lasting impact on the church may be. However, churches must be aware of the danger. Ecclesial individuality is dangerous to the church because there is no accountability for orthodoxy or orthopraxy. Believers may interpret scripture and practice their faith according to their own private beliefs. If they disagree with the pastor one week, they may find a new one for the next. Creating a buffet-style church where one may pick and choose what they are taught while holding membership in a church that never sees them or possibly in a church that they themselves have never physically seen. Pastors will be trying to shepherd those they never see and in some cases may have never met. These individuals may never know what they believe or why they believe it. Church becomes a convenient function of life and their faith tradition becomes a magazine at the checkout line picked up on a whim, only partially read, and easily replaced when it becomes boring or out of touch with the times. Covenantal unity is thereby a necessary practice for churches to renew. The local church as an outpost of Christ's kingdom must not become a disjointed band of individuals preaching various gospel messages. Rather, it should be united as one church under one Lord, one faith, one baptism. Churches should covenant with God and each other to follow scripture as the proper rule of faith and practice, of doctrine and action. This implies the continual teaching of the church covenant. 
If members of the church forget the covenant to which they have sworn themselves, how can they be expected to uphold it? A forgotten document is as functional as a dead document. Therefore, the church covenant, as well as the biblical pericope upon which it is founded, must be continually taught to the church membership, regardless of their maturity in the faith or in life. The regular reading of the covenant should be renewed and made part of the, quote, living fellowship, end quote, of the church. This not only is a means of theological education, but establishes accountability as believers now know what is expected of them. And the church covenant is still beneficial today for the same reasons it has always been beneficial. The covenant assures unity within the local body of believers, recognizing that they stand united locally just as they stand united universally. They are a local gathering of the communio sanctorum, the community of saints who have existed throughout all time and space. Conclusion. The church covenant does not need to be a controversial subject among today's churches. It was created to foster unity within the church and protect the faith tradition of the church from external influences that would seek to cause it harm. For the Free Will Baptist denomination, the church covenant is an integral part of their history, one that they should maintain and renew through its regular reading and teaching within the local assemblies. With the concern that congregants may not return after COVID, it is more important than ever to reaffirm covenant obligations, to emphasize the covenantal unity of the local body of Christ. Believers should be reminded that they are a part of the church and are united with their brothers and sisters. They cannot be a church of one. May churches within the denomination and the church Catholic covenant with God and with one another, with scripture as the rule of faith and practice, to maintain the tradition that was inherited and pass it on to the next generation. May the denomination covenant to defend orthodoxy and orthopraxy while it spreads the gospel message to the uttermost ends of the world. May the God of upheld covenants bless the continued ministry of his servants. And as Philippians 2.2 says, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Thank you all.
what in England was called a General Baptist Messenger. So he was going up to Baltimore County. He would sail up there from Perkins County, North Carolina, and would go up, and he, he was going back and forth all through this time. Okay. He dies sometime in 1742, we don't exactly know when. But, uh, you know, obviously Palmer knew about this covenant, even though we don't know if he actually drafted it. Another thing this tells me is this is, this is about uh, just, you know, seven or eight years before the Calvinists come in mm -hmm. to raid the General Baptists. And what they were arguing is that the General Baptists just baptize anybody. They just, they're lax. They don't have a, a strong uh, church constitution and, and, and they're just, they're liberal and and they're so sending and well, you know, it's everything we can think of to, to set, the main thing is there are minions. <laughs> so we've got to reform them. We've got to, to send missionaries down. So what I have done is looked at a similar covenant up in Rhode Island with the General Baptist that Palmer knew. Uh, and, and, and it's similar to this covenant. And it shows that the kind of approach they have to members joining their churches was not at all lax like the Philadelphia Baptist Association was claiming. And I think, so this is a whole lot closer than the covenant that I had in Rhode Island because this is right there where Paul Palmer was going up and down in this very time. I mean, Henry Sater was a, a layman and, and he needed Paul Palmer's help all the time. Paul Palmer helped finance church building, all this stuff. So this is a great jewel, and I'm so glad that you have discovered it. Well, thank you, sir. Mr. Brace. I have an anecdote and a question. Um, your point about churches not emphasizing the covenant sometimes, uh, I don't know if this is... Uh, I don't know if this is true of the church that I, that I grew up at, or if it was just me missing it since that was there, since I was young. But I don't remember a whole lot about talking about the church covenant when I was growing up. I remember hearing about the church covenant when I came to college here, but I don't remember it as much when I was young. So I, I don't know if that was an emphasis or, or lack of emphasis at the church I attended, or just me being young and missing it. To go along with your point about not emphasizing covenants. So that's my anecdote. My question. In your conclusion, you say the church covenant does not need to be controversial among today's churches. It was created to foster unity within the church and protect the faith tradition of the church, so on and so forth. Um, sometimes when you talk with others in the denomination, um, it becomes controversial in different ways because of different things in it. So what do we do with that? It need not be controversial, you know, and yet sometimes we make it that way. Maybe unnecessarily? What do you think? No, it, you're completely right. It, there definitely, especially nowadays, is, of course, kind of the controversy over particular items, especially within the denominational um, church covenant that people seem to go back and forth on. And I think that really kind of almost misses the purpose of the church covenant is that 
it's meant to be unifying. It's meant to unite us together under one body. And I always think of, of course, what Paul says of, you know, if your convictions don't say that that's a problem, but someone else's convictions do, then you are to love them and not cause them to stumble. And so I think in maintaining the unity, we should remember that, that, you know, if there's particular points in either denominational covenant covenants or in our local church covenants that we're like, well, I don't quite see why it's holding us accountable to that, but someone else does. I think we should remember Paul's exhortation of, well, we don't want to cause them to stumble if they hold to it, like in his case, the eating of meat sacrificed to idols, that, well, we need to accommodate them out of Christian love and unity. Did I adequately dodge your question to use Mr. Webster's phrase? Uh, <laughs> by the way, there's another resource that you might want to look up, and it's uh, Dr. Piccarelli has a pamphlet that the executive office has reprinted called Your Church and You Living the Free Will Baptist Church Covenant. And you have, it has discussion questions and, a, and supplemental videos. And so you can download that by going to nafwb.org and uh, look it up. And it's just, it's Your Church and You Living the Free Will Baptist Church Covenant by Robert E. Piccarelli. Oh, fantastic. Yeah, that would be a great source, especially um, for trying to teach the covenant within the congregation. I think that would be a great source. And, of course, your work, Dr. Pinson, the Freel Baptist Handbook, you break down into the covenant what exactly each part of it means. So I think either of those would be a great resource for those who are wanting to take the step to start teaching the covenant to the congregation. Miss <coughs> Faye, did you have a question? Do we have time? Me? Yes, ma'am. Yes, ma'am. <coughs> Now, all of us know that COVID-19 was an atomic bomb that threatened to destroy the unity of Free Will Baptist churches on the local level, the uh, uh, associational level, and the national uh, association. And it was, a, a, of course, that was a, of the devil. But uh, do, um, so that left us, uh, who are interested, almost uh, out of contact there for a year, at least uh, about what was going on in the denomination. And then it, uh, uh, this, at this past one, it interfered with all the, communication that, uh, you know, the meeting of all of us, you know, getting uh, all of our friends that we had not seen for a year. And I just uh, wonder, uh, do you know of the steps that uh, are being, uh, who knows uh, the steps that are being taken by our denomination to preserve the uni uh, unity of the Free Will Baptists? Uh, as a, uh, as not, not just as a denomination, but I'm talking about the unity of us. And uh, that I know in our, in our own church, uh, people have left 
uh, our church to go to one a bigger church where their their teenagers can have um, access to uh, the facilities, you know, of association with their uh, with their peers. And uh, this is this is uh, this is something that uh, you leaders of this denomination need to take seriously. Um, do you have any um, knowledge of that? Did you run into any steps that they were taking while you were doing your research? No, ma'am. I'm not aware of what steps the denomination may be taking, if anyone else knows. Well, I, I'll just, as a delegate to this past convention, uh, Dr. Forlines, I'll just say that I felt that we had a lot of very good and clear and helpful communication uh, coming out of our national offices, trying to help encourage pastors, trying to help, uh, and even really during a lot of this, a lot of communication that to me as a local church pastor was very helpful in trying to stay encouraged, stay focused, do what we can to meet people where they are, and yet at the same time summoning people back to the gathering, right? Summoning people back to, it may be that the answer to your question is that a lack of emphasis on things like the concept of covenant is partly why things have been as difficult as they have been. Perhaps even with COVID, things might not have been as bad as they were had we had a strong emphasis on covenant at the front end of this whole thing. But that's just me speaking to that. So, um, you know, do you have anything to add to that? Because surely I, I suspect in your research, when you look at the years and the dates, there were some pretty difficult things that were happening in a number of these contexts. There were wars and famines and all kinds of other things that were happening in those same periods of time. Well, a lot of the, what you're saying, Brother Jackson, a lot of the data that is now coming out about how church, about the kinds of churches that fared well during the COVID uh, pandemic, those churches that approximated more a sort of covenantal approach and an authentic uh, priest, priest to each other role and, uh, and embodied community fared a whole lot better. Under COVID, just in terms of their numbers, their offerings, uh, than than churches that have more of a consumer. We, we offer you goods and services, and we're a point where you can come and partake of those goods and services. So uh, there's been a lot of blogs and you know different things that have been written about that already, and I think we've seen that you're right that those churches that <coughs> emphasize covenant community fared better. I will say this in answer to Dr. Faye's, Miss Faye, or I call her Miss Faye, Dr. Fourlines' uh, question. Uh, we had a couple, I'll pat us on the back, we had a couple of pretty good articles, one of them written by Dr. Watts, about COVID. So we tried to provide some uh, helps to our denomination on our blog. And also Dr. Eddie Moody with the, uh, with the National Executive Office had some videos that he did about the, the issue of community and coming back together and, and, and how to do so safely but vibrantly in community uh, that I was very impressed with on the national level. So I think, uh, and I'm sure there were other 
denominational agencies that had similar resources? There is uh, nothing that takes the place of face-to-face -face That's right. communication. I read uh, this paper that has just been read to us myself before I came here. But it seems like almost a different uh, paper for it to be read to me and my looking at it face to face. Yes. And so uh, I have been uh, in, uh, in uh, I have not, I've been at the place that I, I couldn't attend church. And so I've experienced the, um, uh, you know, being, trying to have church by myself. Over, uh, I, I have the radio turned to the Christian station 24-7 uh, uh, in, my, in my bedroom. So when I, during, uh, I can hear it all the time and then I hear it all during my sleep. But that's not like being able to go to church and seeing my, uh, the people in my church and uh, talking face, face to face with them. And uh, so that is what we're, we're facing. Yes. And uh, so uh, we, I guess, we need a denominational prayer meeting uh, somehow uh, because we love each other and uh, we like to be with each other. And uh, so uh, you, gentlemen who are the leaders of the denomination, um, you know, uh, you can quote me on that. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, thank you so much for sharing that. And, and let's, uh, let's thank Mr. Funder here. We're going to break now for uh, supper, dinner, if you like. And we will be back here sharply at 625 for our final two presentations. Don't miss it. We hope to see you then.